0: Steve Green invited me to uh, listen to a teaching online this last week, and uh, it was good, and it was memorable, and it was about an hour and ten minutes long. And I thought, you know, I've been ripping you guys off, because mine average about 35 minutes. And so, you know, I hope you're comfortable in your seats, because we're going to get with it here this morning. I'm sort of kidding, but I will run long this morning. I'm going to be about 45 minutes, so... You can put your watches away and just know we'll get out a little late. Uh, In part because I'm starting a new series this morning, I'm calling Strengthen the Things That Remain. Strengthen the Things That Remain. This will be a 12-week series, so that means it will actually take longer than that, of course, to go through. But that's a phrase out of the letter Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. And the picture was this. Jesus said to this church, You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen those things that remain and are about to die. And as I look around, frankly, I just think in the church, and I don't consider Lion and Lamb an exception, I think a lot of us are, in the words of Keith Green from a song many years ago, asleep in the light. I think in many significant ways, we're asleep, and God's saying to us, just as He did to that church, wake up. Get with the program. Strengthen the things that remain. The series itself really, bottom line, is pretty much basic Christianity. We could call this a discipleship course, as you will. So for many of you, a lot of the things that we'll go over, this will be a rehearsal of things you've already read, thought about, talked about, hopefully in a way that's helpful to rethink again this morning and later through the next few months. For some of you, these things will be new, and I just invite you to think about them, pray about them, read your own Bibles and see... If these things add up according to the scriptures. Before we start this morning, if you have a bulletin and you have a pen, I'm going to ask you two questions. If you have something to write within a bulletin, you can write your answers down. If you don't, just file in your mind your answers to these two questions. If you died today, would you go to heaven? If you died today, would you go to heaven? Not a trick question. You don't have to think about it. When you're asked, would you die if you died today, would you go to heaven? What comes to mind? Yes, no, maybe, I hope so, whatever. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And why? Why? Most of us would say, at least, we think we're going to heaven. We hope we'll go to heaven. Maybe some of us would say, Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Why? If you died today, would you go to heaven? And why? I'm calling this morning's teaching, are you a Christian? No, really. Are you a Christian? No, really. I'm going to rehearse what, uh, for some of you, is probably old information on my upbringing. And some of you may have the same upbringing, by the way, thinking, Barb. Um, I'm one of 11 kids, and yes, I was raised Roman Catholic. You know, the thing, you're either Catholic or you're a careless Protestant thing if you have many kids in your family. I'm one of 11 kids. I'm the middle son. I'm the middle of 11. When I was growing up, my parents were were very uh, staunch and very genuine Roman Catholics. They believed in it. My dad would, would tell us many years later, he felt like the Roman Catholic Church had significantly helped him in his life. So I'm baptized as an infant. I'm confirmed at age 12. I'm an altar boy. Back when we still memorized Latin words, we didn't know the meaning of. I was at Mass every week. That was the minimum. You know, if you serve Mass, you're at Mass every day. I went to parochial grade schools. I went to Catholic high schools. In saying all this, by the way, I do not say I was an exemplary Catholic, for sure. But I was raised Roman Catholic. So, and I was actually proud of that. Um, I don't know if they still do this. I played basketball at Hayden, and it was a big thing. Sometimes they would give you the cheer, the fish cheer, the opposition team. We loved it. We ate that stuff up. We were proud. ...of our minority status. We were proud to be Roman Catholics. It was a great thing. And it was a huge part of my identity. So sometime around 15 or 16, I was stumped when I went to fill out a simple form for my driver's license. And it asked a question among others, and this sounds silly, but I confess I read this question and I didn't know what to think. It just asked sort of your, your religious persuasion. It asked, are you a Christian? And I read this as a Roman Catholic kid. And I thought, I'm not sure how to answer this. I'm a Roman Catholic. And then I'm thinking, is being Roman Catholic the same thing as being a Christian? And are all Christians Roman Catholic or what do I do with this? If it said, are you Catholic? Easy, yeah, that's me. When it said, are you a Christian? I didn't know how to answer it. I molded over and I thought at the end of the day, yeah i 'm a Christian, Roman Catholics are christian, yeah i 'm a Christian, but it stumped me, and i 'm convinced that there are many, many, many people in the states today in the world today who share my youthful confusion that is they 're not sure what does it mean to be a Christian, really? am I a Christian? Am I a Christian really now I want to share, before we even start, I want to say that we're going to hopefully do two things this morning, cover two bases. One is this. If you're not a Christian, but you think you are, I hope that as we talk through this thing, you'll wake up and you'll become a Christian, really. If you think you're a Christian, as we talk through this morning, you might say, you know, I've decided I'm not a Christian. I thought I was, but I'm not. I hope you wake up and become Christian a Christian, really. The other thing I hope we can accomplish is that if you're a Christian, but when someone says, are you sure you'll go to heaven, and you're equivocal on that, you're not sure, you tell yourself, I've trusted Christ, but I'm just not sure, I hope that you'll find assurance that you know you're good to go, and you can live life freely because of that. Just in starting out, I want to define the term Christian. Um, Two two aspects of this. Biblically, in Acts 11.26, in the city of Antioch, followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. Followers of Christ, Christ, that's where we get the term Christian, of course, Christians, Followers of Christ were called Christians. So there's a biblical usage there. And today, generally, anyone who nominally is in a church group, or maybe was raised, hard to say, in something that said they were followers of Christ, they would be called Christians in the large sense today. So Christians would be anyone who is associated with a group that is nominally Christian. That is, at least in name, Christian. That's not the way I want to use the term this morning. I want to use a much narrower definition this morning. If we say nominally, if I'm Roman Catholic, I'm a Christian. If I'm Lutheran, I'm a Christian. If I'm Baptist or Anabaptist, I'm a Christian. If I'm evangelical, I'm a Christian. But I I would suggest that I could be all of those things and not be a Christian. And this is the way I want to use Christian this morning, in the narrow sense. A Christian is someone who has been born again. They've received new life by the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, through faith. A Christian, as we're using the term this morning is someone who's been born again, that's out of John 3. Jesus said, you must be born again to Nicodemus. Got to be born again. Given new life by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You don't belong to Christ. By God's grace, it's a gift. This isn't something you earn. Through faith in Christ. That's what we're talking about. This morning, that's a Christian really. So, by that definition of a Christian... Think of these things. Going to Mass does not make you a Christian, did not make me a Christian. Being baptized does not make us a Christian. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christians or are Christians. You're not a Christian if you go to a Christian school. Are you with me on this? All those associations at the end of the day are meaningless as to whether or not you personally Are a Christian. By the way, going to this church does not make you a Christian. And you're not a Christian if you think you're a nice, sincere person. And by the way, when you read the scriptures, God says there's no good people on the earth Romans 3. No one on the earth is good in God's eyes. Jesus didn't come to save good people, He came to save sinners, He says in the Gospels. None of those things make us Christians. Now, ask most people who go to church. If you die, will you go to heaven? And why? And what are the answers? And I've just done my polls over the years, by the way. I'd invite you to do yours. Here's the most common answer. Will you go to heaven when you die? I hope so. Why will God let you into heaven? Because I've been a good person. I've tried to live a good life, a good moral life. Now just think for just a second. Go back to your answers to these questions. Will you go to heaven when you die? Your first thought? Yes, no, maybe. And why would God let you into heaven? What was your response? What are your response to those two questions? If you thought, I've been a good person, I've been sincere, I was raised in the church, or I've gone to a Christian school. If you have any kind of an answer along those lines... I have no confidence whatsoever that you're a Christian. No confidence at all, biblically, that you're a Christian. You may be a nice person, you may be sincere, you may be religious and moral. And and by the way, you may live an exemplary life, and none of those things mean you're a Christian or that you're going to heaven. This is startling if you say it this way, and I hope it is, because I'm convinced again that many of us are asleep. We think we're okay, and we're not. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But, you know, if we're talking about something of spiritual truth or value or importance, we've got to go to the Scriptures, right, to figure that out. The Scriptures say that that's God's Word. That tells us where where things are and how things are. The Bible's a big place, though. And you can get lost in it. So, if we go to the Bible to say, how do we know something's true in any particular area? This is what we do. We go to the Scriptures and the passages that most directly and clearly... Treat that subject. What's the issue? What's the question? Go to the passages that most clearly, most directly apply to that issue. So for us, that would be John's gospel. Listen to what John said in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Winding down in his 21 chapter gospel, John wrote, Jesus did many other signs and performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, I could keep telling you stories, John says. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is the only book in the Bible that tells you it was written so that you can know who Jesus is and be saved. That's the reason we've got the Gospel of John. So John's Gospel is the place to start if we want to know how can I be a Christian, really? How can I know I'm going to heaven when I die? By the way, it's not that religion is just to help you go to heaven when you die. I don't mean to say that. But it's the ultimate issue. Life on the earth is short. So the bigger question isn't, what, how do I live here? Or what's my life like here? The bigger question is, where am I headed in eternity? That's why we phrase it in this language. So listen to just a few of the verses out of John's gospel. John wrote to tell us how to gain eternal life, how to know we're going to heaven when we die. He said this in John 1, verses 11 and 12, Jesus came to His own, the Jewish nation. He came to those who were His own, and they didn't receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Children of God to those who believe in His name. If you go to the best-known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, John writes, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten or one and only unique Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36, at the end of that same chapter, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. By the way, eternal life here means life through the ages it's life that never ends and qualitatively i warned you you were getting a little heavy Uh, we've talked about we've talked about this i'm sorry that's a yeah it's a trick chair where was i Uh, life, uh, life, especially in John's gospel. This is true in general. <clears throat> when we say eternal life, we don't mean that people who aren't Christians don't live forever, but they don't have life. There's existence, but life, biblically, is life, existence in God's presence, where there's joy and fullness. It's not the termination, it's not that we cease to exist, but eternal life is what we would call real life, not just existence through eternity. John 5, 24, Jesus said, "...He who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life." By the way, this is a great memory verse related to someone having assurance or security in their salvation this says, Jesus says, the one who believes in him has already passed out of the sphere or the realm of death. They already live or occupy the place of life. John 6.40, this is my, the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. To be part of the resurrection, the first resurrection in the book of Revelation, is to be among those who have eternal life. And last, John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to Martha, This is at Lazarus' grave. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. So, I go to the book in the Bible that says it's written so that I can know that I have eternal life. And what does it say? says, believe in Him, believe in Him, believe in Him, believe in Him, believe in Him. How can I know I'm saved? My sins are forgiven. And that if I died today, I know absolutely, 100% that I'm going to heaven. I believe in Christ. I believe in Christ. I believe in Christ. Our good works don't make us a Christian. It is faith in Christ only that makes a Christian. If you go online or if you get a hard copy of the Lion and Lamb Statement of Belief, it says, We believe we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what we're saying here this morning. So the gospel written to tell us, How can I know my sins are forgiven? How can I know I'm good to go? And when I die, I'm going to heaven. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. This sometimes raises the question, uh, sort of the trick question, What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? This is not complicated, and because the Scripture doesn't uh, spend a lot of time on this, I won't either. But I'd say this simply. In the way this is used in the New Testament, to believe simply means to trust that something is what it says it is, or to trust in that person. So when we say believe, all we're saying is to trust Jesus, trust what He said, trust who He is. We entrust ourselves to His care for our salvation. That's all we're saying. It's not more complicated than that. And if it was, John would have told us. He's the place to go. It's that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, I'll just mention in passing a couple others. If you go to John's first epistle, chapter 5, verse 13, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. If you leave John and go to Paul... Paul talks about the same subject. He does so from a different vantage point. It has more of the legal legal tones involved if you go to both Romans and Galatians. But Paul says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. When Paul says justified, he means that according to God, we are in right standing with Him. And that means our sins have been taken care of because God's holy says he's too holy to look upon sin. We can't stay with God if we've got a sin issue. So Paul says here in Romans, we're declared to be in right standing with God through faith. And by the way, the Greek for faith and believe is the same. It's pistis. It's the Greek word pistis. Same word, same thing, little different vantage point. He said in Romans 5, to the one who doesn't work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that would be us, his faith is credited as righteousness. Galatians 2.16 says the same thing. Ephesians 2.8-9, great memory verses by the way. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man boast. You get the picture. If you go to any of the texts in the New Testament that tell us clearly and directly how to be saved, they say the same thing, believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, the most blunt you've got in all the Bible is in Acts 16, I think. When Paul and Silas are arrested in the jail in Philippi, and God shakes the jail, the doors fall open. Sorry. The jailer's afraid that his prisoners have escaped, and because the Romans are going to execute him for failure to keep them, he's going to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, No, don't do that. We're still here. And so you can imagine, this guy is shaken just like that jail. And he knows why these guys are in jail, and he's probably heard what they preached earlier in the day. And so this guy comes up desperate and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the most direct, blunt question you can get. No one's asked me this, ever. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Direct question, bottom line, what's Paul say? If it's complicated, we're going to hear it here. We're going to hear everything he says. Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Direct question, this is as clear as it gets. It's as blunt as it gets. It's as simple as it gets. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. That's being a Christian really... The only thing you and I bring to the equation of salvation is our sin and our need. We bring sin and we bring need and Jesus saves us. He dies on the cross, the innocent for the guilty, to take care of our sin. He rises from the dead, proof that sin has been taken care of. And then He turns around and offers any will who will simply accept His gift of eternal life. He says, it's yours. You don't do anything to do it, to get it. You don't earn it. It's a gift. And the way you get it is simply by believing, by trusting in Him. If you listen to any teaching, any person... Any book, And I would just want to stress this as much as I can. I'm passionate about this. Uh, very passionate about this. Because I'm convinced that tons of people are going to hell and they don't know it. They think they're going to heaven, which we'll talk about in a minute. And lots of other Christians, you know what they do? Their whole life is spent worried about whether they'll, they'll die and go to hell. And whether it's our own thinking or whether it's the teaching of Christians... I've told people I told a, a gal this morning do not listen to this guy on the radio very popular teacher very popular he te- been around for decades respected but you know what if you listen to him you won't know if you're a Christian by the end of the, the half hour because he'll tell you to look at the works of your life to determine if you're going to heaven or not and I say to that guy at the end of the day you find that in John's gospel you show me that out of Romans 3 or Galatians 2 it does not exist does not exist So, if uh, teaching, a church, me, a book, you name it. If somebody tells you to look any place other than Christ to know you're a Christian and you're going to heaven, you need to go the opposite direction. You and I will never find adequate assurance by looking at our own lives to know that we're okay. Because assurance doesn't lie in us, it lies in Christ. If I died today and got to the gates of heaven... And God says, Mike, you can't come in. After I fainted and recovered and got back up, I'd call him on his joke because he's got to let me in. Because he can't lie and he's told me, if you believe in my son, you're good to go. And I'd say, Lord, you're stuck with me because I know who he is. I believe in him and you're stuck with me. I'm good to go. I am 100%, I'm 110% sure where I'll I'll go when I die. There's absolutely no question whatsoever. Having nothing to do with me. I bring nothing to the equation but my need and my sin. And I trust Jesus. I take Him at His word. He's good to go. He's made me good to go as well. There is a terrifying day coming for many people. And it's hard to to frame this... uh, It's terrifying for me to think about. There's a terrifying day coming for many people. Jesus describes this day in Matthew 7, starting at verse 21. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus speaking to the Jewish nation, they're waiting for God's messianic kingdom to come in. And Jesus says, some of you think you're going to be there with the Messiah, and you're not. You're not going to enter His kingdom because you didn't do the will of my Father who's in heaven. Now that sounds a little bit like it's about working and doing the right things in order to be in Jesus' kingdom. But he continues and says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? In Your name we cast out demons. In Your name we perform many miracles. Lord, we've we've done the works of the Father. We've been there. We've done that. We're good to go. Jesus says, I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness what's the deal they have credentials that they're bringing to the gates of heaven and jesus says i've never known you he doesn't say i knew you once and now i don't he doesn't say you were okay at one point and now i've rejected you he says i never knew you but when they're trying to get into heaven what do they say what's their ticket of admittance as far as they're concerned What I did, what I did, what I did. They don't say, I'm yours. They don't say, I've trusted you. They say, look at what I did, look at what I did, look at what I did. And Jesus says, I don't know you. And I never knew you. You weren't saved and then lost. You were never, ever mine. This is a, a, you talk about wake up. This is a wake-up. But it's at the end of the day when it's too late. Back at John 6.40, doing God's will, Jesus said, is beholding and believing the Son. That's what makes a Christian really. It's one who beholds and believes in the Son. If your answer to why God would let you into heaven is anything other than Christ... I have no confidence that you're a Christian or that you're going to heaven. Many people call themselves Christians. Nominally, I did. And I can tell you, if I'd have died at 15, 18, I'd have, I'd have been in trouble. I was not a Christian. Don't be one of the people who glibly says, of course I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm sincere don't wake up too late there are others though for whom this is their problem they look at their life they looked at their life at some point in the past and they said I get it Lord I messed up I trust Jesus to save me from my sins but you ask them will you go to heaven when you die and they're equivocal they're like well I hope so well what's the the hang up why don't you know and this is the deal. Their life doesn't measure up to what they thought it would. They thought, when I become a Christian, this is what my life will look like. I won't sin the way I used to sin. I won't cuss the way I used to cuss. I won't commit immorality. I won't get drunk. I won't smoke. Whatever. Fill in the blank. And they look at their own life and they say, I'm not there. I'm still blowing it, I'm blowing it big time or I'm blowing it regularly, I'm not sure I'm a Christian, because I look at my own life and I say, I don't look like a Christian. Or I don't look like I thought a Christian would. Or I don't feel like a Christian, because my life's still a mess, and it's a wreck. The question becomes, does your obedience, does the degree of transformation in your life, after you've trusted Christ, have anything to do with your salvation. See, biblically, I can tell you, no, it it does not. That's not one of the stipulations. But if it does, then you're stuck too because... And this is where... By the way, this uh, this is where most of the people who teach on this and leave people confused come from. If you have to look at yourself for the affirmation of the Spirit's witness that you're truly saved... How much affirmation is enough? How good do you have to live to be assured you're a Christian? How many sins before you've crossed the line and now you know you're not a Christian versus how many can I commit and and still be okay? Do do you see? If you hold to this, if you look to yourself for the assurance of salvation, you will never, ever be assured you're going to go to heaven. Because you and I will always sin. And if we think we won't or say we don't, John says in his first epistle, we're lying to ourselves. We sin, James says, we sin a lot. And by the way, Christians can sin with the best of them. Or the worst of them. Big time. And you know what? We'll close on this other point in a minute or wind down towards us in a minute. Um. If you look at someone's life and say they're erect, they can't be a Christian, you're fooling yourself. You can't get that biblically. Read 1 Corinthians 5 about a guy sleeping with his stepmother. Immorality, incest. Paul never says he's not a Christian, ever. He doesn't even raise the issue. He just says you've you got to get him out of your church. Christians can and do sin with the best of them and the worst of them. And that inherently doesn't say anything about whether they're saved or not. And once you get on this, I'm going to look at my own life to determine that I really am truly a Christian. You'll never be satisfied because you'll never get there. One, because there's no objective standard. And two, because even if there is, you'll never make it. You're going to sin. We're going to sin as Christians. That's just part of the deal. So... If you've trusted Christ, if you say, Lord, the only plea, the only claim, the only hope I have of heaven is that Jesus died for my sins, you're good to go. Quit looking at yourself, quit looking at your life to be assured you're okay. You'll never get it there. If you come to this realization, um, you might be tempted to call this cheap grace. It's not, it's quite expensive grace. It's all at Christ's cost. But if you come to this realization, you know what you'll start finding? you'll find that your motivation for living changes entirely. Do you know when I sin, and sin repeatedly, I never fear that I'm not going to heaven. But I become ashamed that I'm dishonoring Christ, because I know I'm going to heaven. But this is the way I'm choosing to live. What this does is it changes my whole outlook and my motivation. So fear doesn't become the issue anymore. Gratefulness becomes the issue, thankfulness, loyalty to my dad and to my Savior. These become, begin to become the motivations that I live from. And then instead of having a fearful, guilt-ridden life, I know every time I sin, I go to my dad, I say, Lord, I blew it again. Thank you that if I sin 70 times 7, you'll forgive me every time. I'm dependent on it and I start over but the motivation for the way I live has changed because I just want to say thanks Lord for saving me and I can live peacefully and joyfully as, a, as the child of my father because I know who I belong to I know where I'm going no questions your motivation for living changes if you know you're a Christian going to heaven because of Christ independent of your own level of obedience or transformation and by the way Christians get the Holy Spirit and a new nature. When we are regenerated, when we are born again, we become something that we were not before. We have a life inside us that we did not have before. We have the Holy Spirit in us that we did not have before. And so there's going to be transformation. There should be. And we'll hit this and we'll hit this hard in a couple of weeks. But those things have nothing to do with... With our salvation. We should be transformed over time, and Lord willing, we will be. I was talking to Steve Green about this, uh, one of these last points, just this week. When you talk about these things like this, one of the things that always comes up is this. Uh, Let's say I went to church with someone years ago, and they've blown it big time. They're not going to church anymore. You know what everybody wants to know? Are they a Christian? Were they ever a Christian? Isn't that where our minds go? We want to identify that they are a Christian that's blowing it, or they never were a Christian because we can't reconcile the way they're living with their claim of Christianity. So we've got to parse this out and say, hey, they were never a Christian. Or they're a Christian but they're blowing it. Listen, you and I don't know if someone else is a Christian or not. You have no way biblically. You have no way of knowing, and neither do I. And the fact that somebody's life would otherwise indicate they're not a Christian may have nothing to do with reality. I don't try and figure out if someone else is a Christian or not based on their behavior. Now, if someone says, "I'm not trusting Christ as my Savior," this is easy. I'm a Christian, but I'm not trusting Christ as for my salvation. This is easy. You're not a Christian, really. You're religious that's different. This is based on the way they live. And this is the thing. Paul treats this in 2 Timothy. And this is what I encourage people to, how to think about this. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he said, there's these guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they've gone astray from the truth. That means they've left orthodox Christianity or the the truth about Christ and Christianity in general they've said that the resurrection's already taken place and they've upset the faith of some. And when it says they've upset the faith of some, this means that people who call themselves Christians are not calling themselves Christians at this point. They've stumbled. They're not walking as Christians. And so we ask the question to ourselves, Paul and Timothy, were they ever a Christian? Are they a Christian now? Are they confused? What's the deal? Paul says this, Verse 19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. Paul doesn't say He knows who's a Christian and who isn't. He says God knows. On God's side, on the reality side, Paul says God knows who belongs to Him and who doesn't. He's never confused, never changes. God knows. And on our side, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Meaning this, if I make a claim that I'm a Christian, I should live like it. I should. I don't always, but I should. And he goes on at verse 22 to say to Timothy, Flee from youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If someone says I'm a Christian and they're living in immorality, I don't assume they're not a Christian. Not at all. Christians can sin with the best of them. What I do is this... I confront them, per Matthew, and say, hey, you know, there's an issue here we need to take care of. If they refuse to repent from their sin, then we can't meet with them anymore as Christians. Paul's clear on this. The New Testament is clear on this. Jesus is clear on this in the Gospels. We treat them as someone who's not a Christian. We don't say they're not a Christian. We don't know. But we're not free to meet with them and fellowship with them as a fellow Christian. God knows whether they're a Christian or not. We don't. And it's useless and it's pointless to try and figure out they claim they were, but they weren't. They are, but they're shook up. Who knows? Get over it. Don't worry about it. That's not for us to know. God knows on His side. On our side we say, hey, you've claimed Christ, you need to quit this stuff and you need to meet with other Christians calling on the Lord too. That's the deal. Don't try and figure out whether they're Christians or not. God doesn't tell us that. On an application... If you're a Christian, really, because you've trusted Christ, when you interact with others, don't ask them if they believe a certain set of beliefs. It's fruitless. It's meaningless. Don't ask them that. Ask them, if you died, would you go to heaven? And why? Because that's the bottom line. That clarifies everything. If you died, would you go to heaven? And why? Because the answers to those two questions tell you what that person's hope is based on. If they say anything other than something like Jesus died for my sins or I'm trusting in Christ to save me, you can ask them, would you show me that from the Bible? This is my method. This is what I'm sharing with you. I invite you to do it too. Can you show me where it says that in the Bible? That being sincere will get you to heaven. Where's the verse? I'm being sarcastic here and I would not be sarcastic in saying this to someone else, could you show me in the Bible where it says, being a good person will get me to heaven? And they won't, because they can't. It's not there. But then you can offer and say, hey, well, what do you do with these verses out of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? What, what do those mean to you? Or John three sixteen. or any of those verses. All you have to do is just ask them, what do you do with these? What does this say to you? You don't have to convince them of anything. You don't have to pin them down. Don't ask them if they believe your suppositions. Ask them what they believe. Ask them to show you that in the Bible if they claim to be a Christian or that they hope to go to heaven. And then ask them what they do with those verses that you know you can pin your hopes on. Let me close with a story, (coughs) fictional entirely. A wealthy man has two sons, twins, born into his his family. The nanny who's going to take care of his sons and help raise his sons, she has a son too about the same time. Looks pretty close to the wealthy man's sons. She really wants the best for her son. So she substitutes her son for one of the twins. So her son is raised as a son of the wealthy man in his house and one of the twins is raised in the poorer nanny's home and family. Now, they grow up, and of course, the nanny's son in the wealthy man's house, he gets everything that the other twin gets. He gets all the wealth and the best education, you know, the cars, and as as they grow up, he works in his family's business. He's wealthy. He shares everything from the father's household and wealth. And of course, the twin who's, who's living and grows up in the nanny's house, nowhere near that kind of wealth... Grows up, he's a blue-collar worker, you know, kind of ekes out a living, marries a nice girl, starts to raise his family too. But the disparity between the two lives is stark and significant. So that if you see the son raised in the nanny's house, you don't confuse him with the son of the wealthy man. And the, the, the two boys that have grown up in wealth, you say, well, yeah, of course, they're both the sons of the wealthy man, and they look like it. Now, the wealthy man dies. And the will is being read, and the nanny's present. And the will says that all of the wealth of this man is to be divided equally between his two sons. The nanny breaks down. She confesses what she's done that the son raised in her house is actually one of the twins. And one of the twins raised in the wealthy man's house is actually her son. The question becomes who inherits? Who inherits with the twin we know belongs to the wealthy man all along? The other twin. The other twin. This is not to predispose us to feel bad towards the nanny son raised in the wealthy man's house. What's the issue? Who are the sons? There's only one issue. Who are the sons of the wealthy man? It doesn't matter that the nanny's son grew up in his house. The nanny's son is not his son. And it doesn't matter how closely the nanny's son resembles the wealthy man. At the end of the day, he's not his son. And it doesn't matter the disparity in the appearance of the life of the twin raised in the nanny's house, that he doesn't look wealthy, he doesn't look the part of the wealthy man's son, doesn't make any difference. All that counts at the end of the day is birth. Whose son are you? That's all that matters. And for us, rebirth is all that matters. Related to the question, will I go to heaven when I die? And why? There's only one issue. It's not the appearance of your life. It's not your wealth. It's not your faithfulness. It's none of those things. It's have you been born again? Are you a son or a daughter of the Father? If you are, you may resemble your dad more or less closely. You may honor him better or worse in this life. But at the end of the day, all that matters is, have you been born again through faith in Christ? If you came in this morning and your hope is on anything other than Christ, your hope of heaven... Wake up. Smell the coffee. Wake up today. Tell Jesus, I know I'm inadequate to atone for my own sins. I trust you for my sins. Let's pray. Lord, I know that you want us to be abundantly clear on this subject because you've said so much about it in the Scriptures. And Lord, I know that in your church at large, there are many, many teachers, book authors, churches that do nothing but confuse people on the simplest, most important question in all of life, where will we spend eternity? Father, I pray for everyone in this room that we would be certain, that we would avail ourselves of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the promise of eternal life through your Son simply by accepting Jesus offer, by believing in Him, by entrusting ourselves to His care. And Father, having done so, help us to live as children of the King. We don't want to live sinfully, though we often do. Lord, help us to aspire to live thankfully in a way that reflects Your glory and the redemption that we do enjoy through Your Son. Lord, wake us up. Help us to live as a Christian, really. And Lord, help us to offer that same free gift of eternal life to those around us. Lord, be in our conversations with others without being egregious. Help us be sensitive to the people and the places you're giving us the opportunity to share that same hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.